wonderful to give in Sometimes that's the only way to begin Sometimes hitting the ground with your face down is the only way Sometimes that's how you finally feel okay Welcome to the Japan Distilled Podcast I'm your host, Christopher Pellegrini, recording in my booze closet in Tokyo. And with me, as always, in Fukuoka, Japan, is my co-host, Stephen Lyman. We are both certified shochu and awamori professionals, published authors, and we both love creativity and spirits, no matter which direction it comes from, unless it's from BrewDog. And then they can take their shochu and they can... I'm going to cut myself off right there because I'm going to say something really rude. Uh, anyways, we've been exploring the wonderful world of Japanese spirits for more than a decade and are excited to share them with you through this podcast. Now, this is the final part of our four-part series on Japanese whiskey. As you know, if you have listened to the previous three episodes, we discussed the origins of Japanese whiskey, how these whiskeys became essentially a world powerhouse, and the brand new labeling standards, which were announced last month. Now we're going to talk about uniquely Japanese expressions of whiskey and what that even means. So please download and subscribe to the Japan Distilled podcast on your preferred podcast app, or you can also download these episodes directly from our website, japandistilled.com. Stephen, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Christopher. Uh, this is exciting. Finally getting our final episode of this whiskey series out, and then we can move on to some other interesting drinks. And uh, yeah, this will be a fun discussion. I've been spending a lot of time thinking about what it, what Japanese whiskey really means in reflecting on everything that's happened over the, the past few weeks. Yeah, we've been doing onnomi, online drinking parties focused almost entirely on whiskey, talked to a bunch of experts bouncing ideas off of anybody who might have an opinion on it. So it's uh, it's going to be interesting to try and get this all into like a 30-minute podcast here, all the different ideas that we have. Sure, sure. But, you know, now that we've had all this time to think about this and digest the new standards, try to figure out what this all means, why don't we spend today talking a little bit about what Japanese whiskey really is regardless of what the trade association is trying to decree. Sure. That sounds like a plan. I think we actually should take a step back, look at the bigger picture and start with a bigger question. And that's what is whiskey? What are the guardrails around the entire category of whiskey? What does it mean to be a whiskey? Yeah, that is big. Go big or go home, right? Sure. Sure. Uh, so let maybe just start with the major whiskey styles and production regions, right? Maybe I'll run through the styles, you run through the regions. Okay, yeah, go for it. Cool. So biggest and best, maybe not biggest, but definitely considered best are malt whiskeys, right? Single malt from Scotland, single malt from Japan, some of the finest whiskeys in the world, really beautiful, uh, made with malted grains, right? Uh, but then we have grain whiskeys. These are whiskeys made with unmalted grains. We've got blended whiskeys where you're taking malted and grain whiskeys and blending them. You've got bourbon in the United States, which is made with at least 51% corn, may or may not contain malted grains. Tennessee whiskey is essentially bourbon, but with a different filtration process. You've got rye whiskey, also from America, also common in Canada. That's 51% rye minimum in the mash bill. But there's corn whiskey, there's oat whiskey, there's millet whiskey, there's wheat whiskey. There's one thing in common in all of those. 
they all use grain. Mm -hmm. So I think it's safe to say, right out of the gate, whiskey is made from grain. Fair? Whiskey is made from grains. Yeah, I think that's that's the lowest common denominator there. Absolutely. Sure. Yep. So if I may, I'll, I'll jump into the whiskey producing regions, at least the major areas. And we've got to start with scotch, which is made in Scotland, of course, using malted grains. Then next door in Ireland, you can use malted and or unmalted grains. Uh, Canada, which does a lot of blending. They're very good at blending. And there's a lot of rye used. It's a very rye-heavy tradition in terms of just how pervasive it is in their malt bills. America, you've got a pretty good patchwork of styles there. We're talking bourbon, as Stephen just mentioned, Tennessee sour mash, rye, corn whiskey. And really, if it's a cereal grain, you've got pretty good license to do really anything that you want mm -hmm. if you're distilling or selling whiskey in America. That's right. Japan, essentially until what, February? Yep, that's right. Until February, there really weren't any rules. If it was a dark spirit in a bottle that smelled of wood a little bit, <laughs> then it could be called whiskey. <laughs> and I'm not really, I know that sounds really tongue in cheek and it probably sounds unfair, but it's actually not that far from the truth. Yeah, I think it's fair. Uh, you know, it, it is pretty fair, isn't it? And whiskey is made all over the world and that's obvious, but it's generally, I think we can generally say that Again, it is made from grains. Of course, it's distilled and then it's barreled. It's barreled a barrel aged for some amount of time. I do realize that there are some newer so-called white whiskeys or obviously whiskey that hasn't spent time in, uh, resting in oak, but that's a more of a new phenomenon, I think. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's right. I would agree with that. Whiskey is made from grains, distilled, and then barrel aged. And as far as the grains, it's not really terroir driven, uh, at least not in recent times. Of course, way back in the day when they were making whiskey locally in Ireland or in Scotland, there was they were using local grains because international trade wasn't really a thing. But today, people are just getting their grains wherever they can get them most affordably for most of the whiskeys that are made around the world, whether it be in Scotland or Ireland or anywhere else. So it's not really terroir driven, although things are changing a little bit. Springbank in Scotland their local barley is a really highly sought after expression. They make very little of it because there's so little local barley grown in the Campbelltown region. Uh, and some of the newer Japanese distilleries are also experimenting with local grains. So moving towards sort of a terroir aspect to whiskey, but much more it seems to be about how it's made rather than where. Apart from Scotland having its unique traditions, Ireland having their unique traditions, etc. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And... I'm going to go out on a limb here, but I believe that now with these new labeling guidelines that have been offered in Japan, that really only Scotland and Japan now explicitly require that malted grains are used in production. Am I right? As, as far as I could find, I, I went and I read about the different whiskey making styles. And unless you're using or unless you're attempting to call something a malted whiskey, or a malt whiskey, you don't necessarily have to use malt in your mash bill outside of Scotland and now Japan. Yeah, that's really interesting. That's really interesting. 
Now, let, let's talk a little bit about what malting is, because I'm sure there are people out there that have no idea what, you know, there's malted milk, I think, and there's, True. you know, malt liquor and that sort of stuff. What is malt? And let me explain very simply. This is important for the beer industry, of course, also for whiskey. It's when you take grains, usually barley, and you cause these grains to start growing. And you do that simply by soaking them in water and you basically trick them into starting the germination process. And then you halt that process with high heat in a kiln of some sort. And then you have malt. Now, why would you do that? Why would you trick these grains into growing or starting that growth process? And the reason is when they start this process, they will convert all of their own starches inside of each little grain into sugars to use for energy to grow. And you want those sugars. So as soon as the, you've had the starch to sugar conversion, boom, hit them with high heat, kill off that process, crack those grains open, and then you have something that you can ferment with right after mixing it with hot water. So that grain that has been hit with that high heat and is now filled with sugar, that's malt, all right? And that's used all over the world in beer making and in whiskey production to oversimplify a little bit. Now, distillation, in the whiskey world anyway, you've probably seen those beautiful copper stills. Those are pot stills, generally. And pot distillation is the norm especially in the malt whiskey world, two, three times maybe through a pot still, or at least a couple of pot stills that are side by side is very common throughout the world. You do also get some distillate that is produced in column stills, and sometimes that's blended in, especially if it's a, a grain whiskey, is blended in with malt spirit. And Every part of the world has their own traditions, their own styles, their own rules, obviously. And Japan is now adding to that library of legislation, it's, although it's not law yet in Japan. We'll get to that later. Uh, and then you get to the barrel aging. And this is something that we've said everybody does. It adds pretty much all of the character that you know about whiskey to the final product. And generally, it's oak. One interesting thing, however, about the new labeling guidelines in Japan is that oak is not explicitly required here in the new guidelines. You can use other forms of wood, and that's kind of cool because there's a lot of interesting trees and lumber that's available for any cooper that's going to make some new style barrels. However, it does create a situation where potentially Japanese whiskey that is aged in one of these non-oak woods would not qualify as a whiskey in other world markets. And that's, that's a real and present danger, I suppose. Sure. And I have to take a step back, Christopher, and say that was the most clear and simple explanation of malting I've ever heard. <laughs> I really appreciate that. <laughs> no worries. That was, that was really, really well done. Uh, thank you for that. Um, now, the Aging is an interesting thing. And I think the reason the Japanese did that was uh, because of Mizunara casks, right? That's often called Japanese oak, but it's not American white oak or French oak or some of the other oaks that are often used for barrel making uh, in both the wine and whiskey worlds. But for me, and this sort of gets to the fundamental point that I want to make in this 
episode. Whiskey's a little bit like pornography. You know it when you see it, right? That's the famous Supreme Court claim, right? Or if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's a duck. And for me, a grain distillate aged in oak that expresses as a whiskey is a whiskey. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a really, really broad way of saying it. I specify grains because when you barrel age a rum or you barrel age a fruit brandy, you know, for a cognac or something like that, you're getting a very, very different expression than you're getting when it's a grain spirit in a barrel. Mm -hmm. And so for me, that is really the distinction. So I could imagine, let's say, Japanese cedar, which is sometimes used in, in short-term aging in sake and shochu categories. That cedar does not express as oak at all. No. So I do not think that a cedar-aged whiskey would taste like whiskey. And I don't think I'd want to call it a whiskey, right? Yeah, it would have a totally different character to it. It would be very green tasting. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Absolutely. When they said wood, that really got me thinking about, okay, what are the boundaries on that? Like, where do we go from here? Um, yeah. And maybe that's a hill I'm willing to die on. <laughs> it's funny. That seemed to be the one nod to something that is explicitly Japanese. That was the one area where the the drafters of these new guidelines seem to be aware that, uh, you know what, let's provide a little wiggle room here just in case people do want to be creative with the types of wood that they're sourcing. I mean, there's also what? There's sakura wood too, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's right, cherry wood. Yeah, cherry wood. So there's a lot of different types of wood that could potentially be used. I have no idea how easy or difficult it is. I know Mizunara tends to be quite leaky mm -hmm. and, you know, it's not... It's just not an, a safe way to store spirit for any significant amount of time because you're going to get a lot of it on the floor. Mm -hmm. True, true. But I think this, this leads us naturally into returning to this discussion of terroir. Mm -hmm. So let's go back to that for a moment. And the whole terroir aspect of potentially Japanese whiskey versus Scotch whiskey versus bourbon versus Canadian rye what are your knee-jerk reactions to this? Yeah, if you if you want to spend like several days killing time, just Google, is there terroir in whiskey <laughs> or something like that? Oh boy. It is such a hotly debated topic. You know, uh. there's so many people that fall on different sides of this. And I'd say I fall squarely in the middle. Some whiskey has terroir, certainly. And for example, I mentioned Springbank Local Grain earlier. That is a locally sourced grain malted at the Springbank distillery mm -hmm. and made into a single malt. So that to me would qualify as a terroir-driven whiskey. There are estate whiskeys in the States where you have farm distillers who grow their own grains and distill on site and age on site. Clear terroir. Mm -hmm. But most whiskeys, I would hazard to say, are made with imported grains or grains from really far away especially in smaller producing countries such as Japan, such as Scotland, such as Ireland, there's not a lot of land. So imported grains are often used. Now, American and Canadian whiskeys are probably mostly domestic grains, but not necessarily from the region where the whiskey itself is being produced. Uh, but I think bourbon and rye both have a pretty strong sense of place as far as their, where they sit in the American whiskey world. Sure. But is terroir more than just sense of place? What is terroir, right? Is it 
the production preferences of local distillers? Is it the still design? You know, the shape of the swan neck on on these pot stills really changes the character of the distillate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so from this perspective, I really think that these new labeling standards are doing a disservice to the Japanese whiskey industry. Because from my perspective, the single most impressive thing about Japanese whiskey production is their skill at blending. Mm-hmm. We mentioned a couple of episodes ago that Japanese whiskey has won best blended whiskey in the world at the World Whiskey Awards every year since 2008 or 2009. Mm-hmm. It's one of these one blended category. That's phenomenal blending to be able to do that. Yeah, it's remarkable. And if you take the imported whiskeys out of their blending portfolio, that's a big loss. How about you? What's your take? What do you think about terroir as a when it comes to whiskey? Yeah, I don't have very solidly defined thoughts on this vis-a-vis whiskey, but spirits in general, drinks in general, especially after having having discussed this with my friend and co-host of Sake on Air, Sebastian Lemoine, he explained the French definition of the word terroir. And he said that, of course, it's about the people making the drinks and the 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 microclimate within the the brewery or distillery itself, the microclimate surrounding that location. Mm -hmm. It's the water, of course. It's many things. And so in a lot of cases, there is the ability, I believe, to make stake some claim to a terroir story. Sure, sure. I think you lose that if you start using a column still. I think that to a reasonable extent, you can continue to talk about terroir as long as you're not using a pot still five, six times. Mm-hmm. I'm not really sure, but it is for me anyway. It's more about everything that's happening in that place and not only the cereal grains, mm-hmm. I guess. That's my take anyway, if I had to put something on the table right now. Yeah, I think that's so. I think that's a fair... Mm. That's a fair way of thinking about it. And because some, with something like wine, it seems like the terroir would, is driven largely by where those grapes grew, you know, in the sun and the humidity and the, and the rainfall and all that sort of thing. Sure. Uh, temperature fluctuation, whatever. And with grains, that probably could present itself even in distilled spirit, but it's probably less of a concern because of distillation and then also because of aging. When I spoke with Brian Ashcraft about all of this, he made the point that he thinks probably 70% of the character of a, of a whiskey comes from the barrel, comes from the aging. Absolutely. Right. So it would almost be, regardless of what grains were used, it's going to be the humidity and temperature and environment within the aging warehouse and the condition of the cask that it's being stored in that would give it its unique character. Now, whether or not that unique character is terroir or not, I don't know. Yeah. That's an interesting question. Yeah. And especially that first cask. And since so much of this wood is crossing national boundaries and borders to, you know, there's so much sherry cask aging in Scotland, for instance, Mm -hmm. many times with sherry still in the barrels when the whiskey (laughs) is added. Yeah, there's a lot of ways to slice this one. But let's, let's take a step back and actually let's go back in time. Let's go back to January of this year when most people in the world were thinking that Japanese whiskey is a beautiful thing. They were also not really sure about how to define Japanese whiskey as such. 
let's go back a couple of months and imagine that we're writing the rules. Hmm. What, how would you do it? What would your take be? I mean, what, where would the guardrails be if you were allowed to place them? Sure. Really interesting question. That would be a lot of pressure uh, to, to have that responsibility. <laughs> but so, yeah. Oh yeah. No, it would yeah, be. I actually, you know, I went to Twitter with this question. I took a poll. Uh, our, it might've been our first Japan Distilled podcast poll actually. And uh, thank you to the 211 respondents and 71.1%. So over 70% of the respondents said that it should be made in Japan, which is the standard for Irish whiskey, Scotch whiskey, Canadian whiskey, and American whiskey, right? So that's a clear standard. I think that, that makes sense for, for what is it for what equals Japanese whiskey. That's right. The question that as I asked, it was what makes Japanese whiskey, Japanese whiskey, right? And it's really just about where it's made. Yeah, that's that's overwhelming opinion of the folks on Twitter. Obviously not a scientific poll. People following the podcast or friends of people following the podcast. Or I guess people following people who are following the podcast were most likely to respond. Uh, the second place answer was actually masterful blending. And that was 18.5%. So nearly 90% of respondents thought being made in Japan or masterful blending were really what made Japanese whiskey Japanese. And then a couple of people did comment below because on Twitter, you can only have four, four options. And the options that I had given were made in Japan, follow Scotch rules, masterful blending, and then other, please comment below. So a few people commented below. They actually thought the first two are what mattered, that it was made in Japan and follow Scotch rules. So there were a handful of people that said that. So interesting. Yeah. So maybe it might've gotten up to about 10% of respondents thought that following the Scotch rules were part of the equation, but only 10%. So nine out of 10 respondents, let's say, didn't actually think that the Scotch rules were necessary, or at least not the most important aspect. Or at least not not to have all of the Scotch rules, maybe just cherry pick them. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's what we're thinking would be better is to pick what's best and then adapt the rest. Yeah, no question. Now, we did have one far out suggestion from friend of the pod, Ben Steiner, who said, uh, Japanese whiskey should be made with the breath of Godzilla, a Shinto blessing, a Buddhist curse and having a fax machine involved in the supply chain. <laughs> yeah. <at laughs> I least just thought that was too machine. good not to share. <laughs> That's right. Uh, now, uh, Jared Adler actually had an interesting perspective, and he was probably the most free in how to address it. And he just said, Japanese-ness in the branding. Is that all that really should be required? So basically, it sounds like he was in favor of not changing anything. Mm. <laughs> if it looked like a Japanese whiskey, it was a Japanese whiskey. Uh. Um and I wouldn't go there, but I do think, and I've, I've said this before, I think the labeling standards went a step too far in requiring essentially following Scotch whiskey making rules in Japan. Yeah. Uh, rather than establishing a unique Japanese tradition. But how about you, Christopher? How would you like to see Japanese whiskey defined? Uh, I was afraid you were going to do that to me. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I can't remember if I answered that poll or not, but I definitely, my answer would be made in Japan. Mm hmm at least the the fermentation distillation and aging all happens in Japan mm -hmm. although you know i would add some flexibility there bottled in bond could be interesting somewhere else in the world would it not be yeah yeah I'm, i i guess i i would like to add a little bit of flexibility for exporting the spirit maybe in the casks themselves and then bottling it somewhere else i don't know if they are considering that at all but that could be really interesting. In addition to that, I like 
where we've kind of gone so far during this discussion today, which is grains, cereal grains are the deal. And I think the Japanese regs, the new labeling regulations are explicit in that using grains. Mm-hmm. And I like the idea of, is it oak? Maybe it's oak. Flexibility, not sure. I haven't really thought very strongly on that one or not for any amount of time. And I guess the one other thing where flexibility would be pretty cool is allowing some level of blending since that has been Japanese whiskey until now. Mm -hmm. For the last hundred years, it's been all about blending. And as you said, they're masterful blenders. Mm -hmm. So I don't know why you would just 100% preclude people from being able to do that anymore because it does really limit the creativity. And you start getting yourself into some food purity law craziness like what they have in Germany for beer with the Reinheitsgebot and where they can't really, their hands are tied, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's not what we want, I think. And then... I don't know, maybe you also decree that at least two distillations are required. I don't know how you feel about that, but yeah, that's just off the top of my head. I mean, I think, you know, when we've, and you and I have done this, we've tasted barrel-aged shochu right next to whiskey. And when you have a single distilled product aged in a barrel, it still gets that grain character. They don't express as whiskeys. They express as shochu aged in oak. And so I think a double distillation, regardless of how you sacrifice your grains, would be a key distinction in the Japanese whiskey world. And what we're, of course, talking about are these barrel-aged shochus that are sold as whiskey overseas, even though they're not sold as whiskey in Japan. Mm -hmm. And some of those express completely as a whiskey. Like I was talking about before, I think if it tastes like a whiskey, smells like a whiskey, it's a whiskey, right? And I don't think how you how you sacrifice your grains, extract the sugars from your grains should make any difference at all. In fact, using koji to do so is a traditionally Japanese process. There's 1200 years of, of alcohol making tradition in Japan using koji. Yeah, right. There's what, 150 years of alcohol production in Japan using malted grains. Mm-hmm. So why would you favor the imported malting process to the domestic koji process? Yeah. Especially since koji sacrification is much more efficient than malting. It seems a little bit yeah, a yeah, little bit of an own goal uh, in my opinion. And I think this probably reflects the fact that the whiskey makers don't really use koji sacrification and they were the ones writing the rules. I think that's exactly right. And I I find it really, it is incredibly short-sighted that you would prevent Japanese distillers from having that tool, the koji sacrification tool that everybody in the country uses. And you're saying, oh, even though this is Japan, you can't use it to make what is (laughs) now a, you know, a more seriously defined category of whiskey that is respected all around the world. Now, what could happen and what has already started to happen is that koji is being used to make whiskey in other parts of the world. For instance, there is the the Boss Hog by Whistle Pig, which used some small amount of koji fermented spirit in the blend, as, as far as I understand it. Perhaps I'm wrong. Mm. But wouldn't it be wild if koji whiskey became a thing somewhere else in the world 
but you still weren't allowed to use it to make whiskey in Japan. That would just be absolutely hilarious to me. Yeah. And another thing that I find to be a little bit odd, because I th- what I think the whiskey makers are trying to do is they, they are very uncomfortable. I could be wrong, but I imagine they're uncomfortable with the idea of rice being used to make whiskey. Mm. And I get that. It's definitely a new idea. However, in the new regs, they allow all cereal grains and rice is a cereal grain. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which is weird to me. That's that's a little. I was like, wait a second. <laughs> you're you're not allowed. So you can use rice, but it can't touch koji. Koji's the bad guy here, and I think that's a really really big mistake mm-hmm. to make koji the the boogeyman. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure that the the regs actually prohibit koji, but malted grains must be used and other cereal grains. So you could malt some of your grains and use koji on some of your grains. And that would still classify as a whiskey, as I understand the regulations or the standards as they're written. So they're not actually saying no koji. Really? Okay. That wasn't how I understood it. Got it. Yeah. That's how I read it. All right. Maybe we should revisit them again. And if we if we uh, were wrong about that, we'll correct that on a future episode. But I think there's nothing explicitly saying no koji. Now, I didn't read the original Japanese version. But that's not in the English uh, translation version of the regulations. Okay. Yeah. Um, And I did want to make one correction, actually, from the last episode. I said that the Chichibu distillery was in Shizuoka. It's in Saitama. So I apologize to uh, Saitama for putting the distillery somewhere else, because I'm sure you're very proud of what they're doing there. (laughs) So my mistake. I'm surprised I missed that. Yeah. Jeez. You know, it's what happens when we when we podcast, I guess, but you know, we're human mistakes will be made and we'll do our best to correct them when we, when we do. So I think it sounds like you and I have similar definitions for Japanese whiskey or what we would like the regs to be, what we'd like the standards to be used using grains. I like the idea of double distillation because that clearly separates it from shochu, both in how it expresses and how it's typically made. The wood aging is the one area where I feel like I'm still trying to wrap my head around it, whether or not it needs to be an oak. Maybe it is in oak, but can also touch other wood, right? Maybe the staves are oak and the, and the heads okay. of the casks can be made of, I don't know, Sakura or, um, I know that there's, they're experimenting with like what chestnut and a few other woods. That sounds very interesting. I would love to try whiskey that has some chestnut qualities to it. Right. Right. Yeah. I've, I've tried some shochu that had, that was aged in chestnut and that was delicious. So I can only imagine a whiskey would be as well. So, oh wow, yeah. So for the cask, I'm still sort of stuck on whether it can be any wood or it really should be oak, just to kind of adhere to how <laughs> every other whiskey seems to be made, which is in oak in oak casks. But right, yeah, it doesn't surprise me that you and I would be pretty much aligned in how we see this after all the time we've spent talking and thinking about this. But this has been a interesting discussion for sure. Any last thoughts on Japanese whiskey and where you see things going? Yeah, I guess I I think this is overall a good thing. I, I enjoy the fact that this is finally happening a hundred years into this, the into the evolution of Japanese whiskey. Now there are actually rules defining what Japanese whiskey is. I mean, it's remarkable that it took this long for this to be codified in some way, shape, or form. My optimism here is that as everybody's discussing it, as everybody's becoming more aware 
And as more and more products are hitting the market, some stuff's going to fall off. I mean, we've we've seen some of the ne'er do wells who have been flagrantly uh, repackaging scotch as Japanese whiskey for years. They've they're not going to be able to do that anymore, and that's fantastic. But I also hope that in the meantime, people continue to just judge these drinks on their merits. For one, so if it tastes good and you like the price, then go for it. And then the second thing is I do also hope that some level of innovation is baked into whatever version of the regulations become law, because that's where we're headed, I believe. We're going to you know, kick the tires on these regulations for a number of years, and then at some point, there's going to be a movement to get stuff fully written down that requires all distilleries in the country to abide by the same set of rules. And by the time that happens, I hope that something like, who knows, maybe there could be a real honest acknowledgement of the quality inherent in something that might be called koji whiskey. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's that extra umami dimension that people are really attracted to. Maybe it starts overseas. Maybe that's what happens and it boomerangs back to Japan. I don't know how that's going to uh, transpire, but I do hope that... The folks at the top, whether they're affiliated or the president of a large whiskey company or not, I hope that they see that there is some larger long-term benefit to making sure that you don't put handcuffs on Japanese distilleries like they seem to be doing right now. Mm -hmm. And I know I'm going on and on and on, but another thing that I think is very important is that Japanese whiskey is doing amazingly well and yes it's going to keep growing and if the industry can do it right and shake out some of the ne'er-do-wells there's only smooth sailing on the horizon however shochu and awamori which are a much larger part of the japanese economy they need a lot more help expanding overseas so anything any of the the argumentation that goes on in the context of clarifying what Japanese whiskey is, I really, really hope that Koji is not in some way made out to be the bad guy. And I'm a little bit apprehensive about that. And that would be bad, not only for the shochu and Aomori industry, it would also potentially be a little bit detrimental to the uh, sake world as well, if Koji all of a sudden becomes a boogie word. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's really thoughtful reflection on all of this. I will say as far as it becoming law, I don't know that the Japanese government really has an appetite for that. They've already announced that it's unlikely that the laws will be changed. Now, of course, that could change in the future. Okay. Uh, And Brian Ashcraft, when I spoke with him, he made the point that the Japanese government just wants the tax revenue. So from their perspective, the more whiskey being made, the better. And if you cut out a lot of distilleries from being able to make it by setting standards that they're not allowed to produce under, which is what would happen if if shochu makers could not make shochu that could be sold as whiskey or, or using the koji process, I'm sorry, not shochu that's sold as whiskey, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, let's say, as we said, if the standard was double distilled using grains and you could sacrifice those grains however you wanted to, so koji would be allowed and then aged in wood or aged in oak, that becomes Japanese whiskey or that becomes whiskey, then suddenly all those shochu makers who have been, some of them, oak aging product for decades since the 1950s 
suddenly that's a lot more tax revenue for the Japanese government. Mm -hmm. So I don't necessarily see government stepping in and making rules that make it harder for more businesses to sell more product because I'd be losing tax revenue. Could be wrong about that. Maybe maybe the winds will change. Maybe the lobbying interests of the big boys is just going to overwhelm anything. But right now, it doesn't seem like that's on the horizon. But it was interesting, as I was doing research, I didn't realize this, but actually the mash bill for bourbon, that 51% corn, comes from a, a an act of Congress. <laughs> the US Congress actually passed a law mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that says that bourbon has to be made with 51% grain. I found that really interesting. So it does happen sometimes. Yeah. Got to make sure that people are getting what they pay for. True, true. That That's a really good point. And I think that's where where I land on this is let the whiskey makers be creative or the spirits makers here in Japan be creative. Let them bring these really interesting, beautifully made products to market and let the consumer decide, but be transparent about how it's made, where it's made. Yeah, exactly. Where it's aged, how you're making it. Mm -hmm. There are barrel-aged shochu sold in America, sold as whiskey, winning awards. Mm -hmm. So these can express as whiskeys, right? And there are wholly imported whiskeys brought to Japan and sold here looking like Japanese whiskey. They have nothing to do with Japan other than the fact it was bottled here. So that needs to stop. But the transparency can make all of this work, right? Right. As long as you know what's in the bottle and there's enough information for you to make an informed decision as a consumer, that's when the consumer wins. We know that there is a very, very creative distillers out there in Japan and overseas making really interesting things. You mentioned Whistlepig with their... What was it called? Like Samurai Scientist Boss Hog or something like that, which was an ode to uh, Professor Takamine from back in the day. And then you've got Empirical Spirits in Copenhagen making just wild koji fermented distillates. You've got... Yeah, we know of other distilleries around the world that are looking into using koji as, as part of their fermentation. So yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's something that could very well develop in other parts of the world while stagnating here, at least in a whiskey sense. Yeah, no question. That could that could actually be a risk to the Japanese whiskey tradition. And that would be a shame. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much for joining us for this very in-depth kind of brain meld between Stephen and I on, on what we wish, our wish list for the future of the Japanese labeling regulations. If you're interested in learning more, about the world of Japanese whiskey, then you're definitely going to want to pick up a copy of Stephen's book, The Complete Guide to Japanese Drinks, which also covers lots of other Japanese alcohol traditions. I'm talking sake, umeshu, of course, shochu and awamori, basically everything. I'd also like to recommend Brian Ashcraft's book, Japanese Whiskey, and both of the books I just mentioned are available on Amazon as well as through your local bookseller. Please also tune in to our new Japan Distilled weekly show, which is broadcast live on Facebook, YouTube, and the japandistilled.com website. That is every Wednesday morning at 10 a.m. in Japan, every Tuesday night at 8 or 9 p.m., depending on daylight savings <laughs> time. Uh, and then, you know, you can extrapolate from there around the the globe. You can find me at Chris Pellegrini on Twitter and at Christopher Pellegrini on Instagram. Pellegrini is P-E-L-L-E-G-R-I-N-I. Stephen, where can people find you? As always, you can find me on 
Twitter or Instagram at shochu underscore danji. That's S-H-O-C-H-U underscore D-A-N-J-I. You know, maybe our next Twitter poll is what should I change my handle to? Because I am so tired of spelling that out (laughs) every time we record this segment. (laughs) Hey, man, you've got Danji. I've got Pellegrini. Same, same. Yeah. So actually, just so folks know, Danji is a is a reference to Kyushu Danji, which is a, a phrase used to describe a stubborn old, old man down in Kyushu where shochu is made. I picked that handle when I had no no designs on doing podcasts and things like that. <laughs> uh, I'm also uh, using the Japan Distilled Instagram and Twitter account, so you can reach me there. Please feel free to reach out and ask questions about Japanese whiskey or any other Japanese spirits you have questions about. Uh, from my perspective, for additional reading, I'd recommend the outstanding Whiskey Rising by Stefan Van Eiken. It's really, really well-researched. It's a brick. You know, it belongs in libraries everywhere. And The Way of Whiskey by Dave Broom is another really nice book. Uh, Really his journey as a whiskey expert, a Scotch whiskey expert, exploring the Japanese tradition. So really fits in with everything that we talked about in this episode. So yeah, that's... uh, That's it for me. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you, everybody. We really appreciate it. We'll be back in your feed very soon. So stay tuned. And wherever you are in the world, a very hearty and heartfelt kanpai. Time's up.